The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Find out more about the network and other amazing Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornway. And I'm Ryan Hasman. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're also joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. We are recording this episode on April 19th, 2018. This episode, we're going to talk about the latest developments from week 300 of the never-ending Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline dispute. Ryan is behind enemy lines in Vancouver, and he'll give us the lay of the land from ground zero in this pipeline dispute. We'll talk about some non-pipeline-related news in Alberta politics, and Ryan will share some political wisdom from our So You Want to Be a Candidate segment, and we'll respond to some listener questions. But before that, let's delve into some nomination and political gossip. And even before we get into that, I just want our listeners to note that uh, we are recording this over Google Hangouts, so if the sound is slightly suboptimal, that's why. Nomination season is upon us. Just like spring, nominations are in the air, and it smells great. I personally have three candidates that I'm going to give a little bit of a shout-out to, because it's my podcast, and why not? I have three good friends who have announced this week that they're running. I probably won't be able to do this for all 87, but I will do it for these three. Starting off with Nicole Williams, who has announced that she'll be running in Edmonton Henday West. Nate Glubish, who I am not related to but share some cousins with, is running in Strathcona Sherwood Park. And my friend Searle Turton, who is currently on City Council in Spruce Grove, has announced that he'll be seeking the UCP nomination in Spruce Grove, Stony Plain. Great job, guys. Go get them. Now, what's interesting about nomination season and how I know that I'm becoming useful is that people are sending me information hoping that Dave will post it on his website. You so appreciate that. You're officially an influencer, Ryan. Or a conduit <laughs> to the great Dave Berta, who I've said before on the podcast is probably the best place to go check if someone's running. In fact, before going live here tonight, I just went there as I was talking to Dave. I said, Dave, Never mind. I'm just going to check your website. So thank you for that service that you provide. Uh, you know, I, it's my understanding that at least on the UCP side, there's great interest in these nominations um, and they're going to be starting them basically right after AGM. So I would expect them to start as soon as June. I believe the leader has said he wants them to be done most for the most part by the fall. And they may be carrying over. Actually, Jason said it in our interview, they may be carrying some over into early 2019, but basically if you're thinking about running, it's game on and make sure you get out there and get started because these are all going to be contested and it's going to be close race. Now on the NDP side, I don't know what's going on. Do you guys? Well, there's definitely not as much activity yet on the NDP side. We have um, a number of incumbents announcing that they're running for re-election and a couple nomination dates that have actually been set uh, for the for NDP MLAs in Calgary Curry, Brian Malkinson is seeking re-election. Uh, in Lethbridge East, Maria Fitzpatrick is seeking re-election. Uh, I don't believe Shannon Phillips has declared whether she, whether she's running for re-election or not, but I would would I would be surprised to hear if she wasn't running for re-election for the NDP. Oh, actually, the NDP nominated their most recent nominated their first candidate of the next election uh, last week. Uh, Kathleen Ganley was nominated as the NDP candidate in Calgary Mountain View. Oh, now, now we talked about that uh, in a previous episode about how. Ganley was first elected in 2015 in the Calgary Buffalo riding, which is downtown Calgary. Uh, and because of the shifting boundaries with the, the electoral map being redrawn uh, for the 2019 election, Joe Cece, who represents the neighboring Calgary Fort, is running now running in Calgary Buffalo, which now includes the, the neighborhood he lives in. And is also, I would argue, if there are is such thing as a safe, safer seat for the NDP in Calgary, Calgary Buffalo is probably a safer seat than the new Calgary Pagan, which just takes up most of what the old Calgary Fort was. So Kathleen Ganley is running across the river in Calgary Mountain View, where Liberal MLA David Swan, who's represented the riding for four terms, uh, is not running for re-election. So there's kind of a bit of a of a shuffle going on in uh, in this in central Calgary among two senior cabinet ministers. So if you were cynical or partisan, which I am both, you could say they convinced Minister Ganley to change ridings by offering her an uncontested nomination. 
I'm not sure the nomination would have been contested. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that's that's a different issue. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I mean I think there I think there was some shuffling going on in terms of trying to find a way for two senior cabinet ministers not to run against each other for re-election. Um, from what I understand, Ganley actually lives in Calgary Mountain View and has lived in Mountain View for quite a, quite a few years. So she didn't actually live in Calgary Buffalo when she was running uh, when she ran in 2015. So this is an interesting topic that I actually wanted to make one comment on. Generally, I think the three of us would agree in grassroots democracy being a positive thing, and that for as much as possible, uh, sorry, nominations should be contested. But I actually think it's in both the parties and the system's best interest for leaders to maintain some flexibility on nominations. Um, I don't know the number, five, ten, where you can nominate someone who may not otherwise be part of the process. So an example of this in the federal party in, I think it was 2011, actually it was a by-election, was when they got the commissioner of the Ontario Police to run, Julian Fantino. Now, this isn't a comment on how that worked out. But there are people in both high-profile private sector roles and high-profile public sector roles who, for various reasons, aren't allowed to hold a partisan membership and, frankly, aren't going to go out and sell 400 memberships in the six months leading up to a nomination. And it's positive to have these folks in the system. So I, for one, would like to see all major parties be able to do something. You know, the, the mechanism could vary, but when you're looking at underrepresented groups or you know stars who have some experience some governing experience or some some management experience or something to bring them into the system to be able to appoint them i wouldn't criticize it you know there has to be a limit of course i don't know what the number is but i think we if we don't allow for that you're essentially just going to let the most political people run which isn't always for the best yeah i agree i mean i think there need there needs to be some flexibility in terms of of parties being able to appoint candidates in certain cases. Um, and and we, we see that that's pretty typical, pretty common in Alberta politics. At least it was under the former PC, under the former PC party government. Um, and I, knew, I believe the Wild Rose appointed a couple candidates going into 2015, or at least into the 2012 election. I mean, I, I think what we're seeing now is, at least in Calgary, uh, actually, well, Cal Cal mostly Calgary and rural Alberta, not, not so much in Edmonton um, yet. But there's a, there seems to be a lot of enthusiasm around UCP, UC, contested UCP nominations in Calgary and in rural areas. There's been a few candidates who've step up, stepped up in Edmonton, but it really is kind of quiet, at least in terms of those who've officially declared in the most part. Um, but what I'm seeing, what, I, what I'm looking for is whether the NDP can generate interest and generate excitement around nomination races, which they haven't really been able to yet. And it's still early. We're still a year, but, but I mean, it's still early, but we're only a year away from the next election. Um, so it, it seems to me that, I mean, it definitely looks like the, the UCP in terms of nominations has the momentum behind them going into uh, going in 12, 12, where we are, are 12 months before the next election. Well, I had originally commented on here that we're a year away at most because um, the legislation, I believe, says March to May. But it is true that in our system, the premier actually doesn't have to call it. So if, you know, the theoretical time frame for an election is actually tomorrow, she could drop the writ until I believe May of 2020. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. The, the, it's actually in the constitution that, that uh, legislatures have to basically have to dissolve once every five years. Um, so Alberta has this kind of oddball fixed election period legislation. I think we're the only province in the country where there's, there's a fixed election period where you have three, this period of three months where you're supposed to call the election. I think other provinces that have fixed election laws actually have fixed election dates. Um, I mean, this was kind of, when, when Alberta introduced the fixed election legislation under Alison Redford, it was kind of their way to, uh, to we, you know, weasel their way out of a promise that they'd made uh, during, uh, during a leadership race. Now, now getting back to the, the nomination news, one in, uh, two, two more interesting nominations that, that I think we should, we should talk about. Uh, one that may give us an indication uh, into when a by-election will be called the NDP have set a nomination date for the Calgary, or pardon me, for the Fort McMurray Conklin uh, by-election nomination for May 10th. So that gives you an indication that the NDP preparing for a by-election in uh, in Fort McMurray Conklin, which is the riding that Brian Jean, former Wild Rose Party leader and UCP MLA, uh, resigned from uh, a few weeks ago. 
Uh, and from what I hear, uh, and it hasn't officially been announced, but I hear that uh, Wood Buffalo Councillor Jane Stroud is expected to seek an NDP nomination. So that's actually that's actually interesting in, in, in a riding that where the NDP actually did fairly well in the last election, but may not be expected to do well during the given the current political and current economic situation that they might be able to uh, to nominate and, and attract a candidate that has name recognition. That's that's I, th I think that's kind of interesting. Um, so that gives you gives us an indication of of that that uh, that the NDP are preparing for a by election in Fort McMurray Conklin. Uh, I still haven't heard anything from the NDP in uh, Innisfil Sylvan Lake, where another by election will will need to be called. And I think there are at this point there are six or seven people running for the UCP nomination in uh, in that district. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I think you can you can tell a lot about the prospects for a particular riding based on the interest in who wants to run. Um, in the Fort McMurray riding, I shouldn't name names because they don't have them all, but a friend of ours, Layla Goodridge, is looking at running Fort McMurray Conklin. And I believe there's a couple others, and I'm just looking at your site, and I don't see it here. So um, I imagine that there'll be a few others as well. I mean, it, as you said, the NDP did okay there, but I think it's probably, it should turn out blue this time. I mean, anything can happen. But I think if you're looking at it um, flipping, to NDP, it's probably not going to happen. And another nomination race, and this one is the one that made a bit of news this week. Uh, Scott Sear, the UCP MLA for Bonneville Cold Lake, uh, has announced that he will not be seeking. He's, he's actually withdrawing from the race in the new Bonneville Cold Lake St. Paul riding. Now, Sear, uh, because of the way the boundaries are being redrawn, because the area of northwest, northeast Alberta is actually losing a district uh, going into the next election, uh, Sear was having to face off against Lacklebish St. Paul Two Hills MLA, also from the UCP, uh, David Hansen. Now, this was interesting because it's not really common in, in Alberta politics for two uh, incumbent MLAs to have to face each other in party nominations. I actually, I, I think in one podcast uh, a couple or a couple podcasts ago, uh, I couldn't actually think of of a case where that had happened. But since then, I've actually found a case uh, where two incumbent MLAs ran against each other for a nomination. You have to go back to uh, and if anybody knows, thinks I'm, if anybody has any, has any information showing I'm wrong, then please correct me. But as far as I can tell, you have to go back to like 1992, 1993, when there were two, uh, there was also a, a redraw of the boundary maps. And in Edmonton, two NDP MLAs actually ran against each other for a nomination in Northwest Edmonton. And uh, one of them won, one of them lost. And then the other one, the one who lost had, had to go and run uh, in another riding across, across the city. And then they both ended up losing the next election anyway. But but uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't uh, wasn't incredibly healthy for uh, for party solidarity to have two two MLAs running against each other, and and I mean that might have been part of it uh, for Scott Sear deciding he's not going to run. Um, I mean, I'm not sure what the electoral prospects were on the ground. I hear David Hansen's a, a fairly popular MLA among conservatives in that area of the, in that area of the province, um, but I guess well, we won't see now whether. Uh, what a Scott Sear versus David Hansen race would look like in Bonneville, Cold Lake, St. Paul. It has now been 300 weeks since Kinder Morgan first submitted their plans to expand the Trans Mountain Pipeline from Edmonton to Burnaby. Last week, Kinder Morgan gave a May 31st deadline to, quote, consult with various stakeholders in an effort to reach agreements, leading some uh, some political watchers and, and, uh, and industry watchers to believe that, uh, that, that uh, the, 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 the company might pull the plug on the project. Uh, Premier Rachel Notley says the Alberta government could potentially become an investor, and, and there's some expectation and speculation that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government could take a similar approach. Uh, Energy Minister Margaret McQuaig-Boyd introduced Bill 12 in the legislature this week, the Preserving Canada's Economic Prosperity Act. This bill would give the Minister of Energy sweeping powers to, quote, make an order directing an operator to cease transporting natural gas, crude oil, or refined fuels in the operator's provincial pipeline or by the operator's railway or commercial vehicle, uh, essentially turning the taps and, and putting the screws to British Columbia over, over their opposition to the pipeline. In response, BC's Attorney General David Eby said the BC government will seek a court reference case to see if, it, if this would actually be legal for Alberta to implement Bill 12. So the never-ending twists and turns of the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline political dispute, uh, this is Federalism in action, two provinces and a federal government uh, 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 fighting each other politically and through the courts and through the media and through public opinion over this pipeline issue that seems like it will absolutely never end. 
Ryan, will it ever end? Well, let me tell you guys, I don't know how this ends. Uh, I am today here for work. I'm currently sitting in Vancouver. I am approximately 200 meters from the ocean, and um, I did not pollute it, although I also spent some time today in Burnaby. Uh, and I was sneaking around looking for a coastline to spoil with my standard issue jar of bitumen that we all carry uh, in a chain around our neck. So, no, it's it's quite the issue. You know, watching that press conference last week um, with both Premier Notley, Premier Horgan, and then quite kind of impressively, Andrew Scheer, and then <laughs> Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, it basically played out like a slow motion train wreck. I mean, you knew all the positions going in and nothing changed and they all just firmed up their position at the end of it all john horgan is only the premier because he needs the greens to hold him in power and that makes this issue for him non-negotiable and there is nothing that we can do he would have to be literally prepared to say i don't want to be premier anymore or i'm prepared to not be premier anymore to even negotiate like, in a way, he's not the one we should all be worrying about. Then again, the Green Party exists to block stuff like this. So, you know, I saw some polling this week, and I'm sure you guys saw it as well, about support for the Kinder Morgan pipeline here in BC. And while no particular poll is ever perfect, I think what it showed was that opposition to it at least is quite concentrated. It's definitely not as unpopular in BC as it is popular in Alberta. For me personally, I mean, we can debate the merits of this project, but one of the things that I just can't wrap my Alberta mind around is that this is an existing pipeline. All of the access has been set. You know, all the indigenous um, land and territory dispute has been, you know, it's, it's not like we're laying down a new pipe. We're doubling the capacity of an existing project. So I don't think anyone thinks this issue is about the merits of the project. I think this is now a proxy war on all sides. And it's very complicated. And as we've said before, opponents of these types of projects have a far easier fight to fight because they don't have to actually win on merit. They don't have to win legally. They barely have to win politically. They just have to stall until the investor, in this case, the Kinder Morgan, decides that this isn't worth the risk. It's a funny state of affairs when Jason Kenney, uh, who I support and a friend of mine, is the one backing up Rachel Notley, you know, in principle, backing up, backing up Rachel Notley's plan to invest public dollars in an infrastructure project like this. But without, you know, I, I, I understand the play. And in fact, if it helps deal with some of the risk, I think it should be considered. But I don't see how that solves the jurisdiction issue. You know, whether it's owned by the three of us, or it's owned by Kinder Morgan, or it's owned by the government of Canada, BC's issues aren't going to change. So, this issue has now become a power struggle to the death. I wonder how much of this is personal between Rachel Notley and John Horgan, who I understand have known each other for decades. Um, it's not just Albertans who lose. It's the whole country that's losing. And, you know, one of the things, too, I guess, just in closing, is that nobody's saying this should come at the cost of the environment. They have announced, the federal government announced a $1.5 billion uh, a coastal protection plan which would be in place should there be a spill. We all know that there's no perfect way to transport hydrocarbons or any form of fuel. The, the lac Mégantique um, incident is only a few years ago. And so to say that rail is better than a pipeline is not true. And we know that the world needs oil. So, right, I said I'm 200 meters from the ocean. Well, about 15 kilometers from here, there's probably an oil tanker right now because the oil tankers go from Alaska to Seattle all day long, every day. And there hasn't been a major spill since Exxon Valdez, since we moved to double line hulls. I mean, we know we all know all this stuff. And so the issue is just so frustrating. And I think that it's going to continue until something changes at the Victoria legislature. So at some point, the Green NDP coalition is going to crack, or they're going to have to go back to the electorate. And I don't think they would win right now. I think the Liberal Party of BC would win a government and negotiate a deal. And the deal won't be, let's dump Alberta's bitumen into the ocean. It's going to be some reasonable balance, which is what everybody else other than John Horgan is talking about. So that's my rant. I feel like I'm Rush Limbaugh or something, ranting into the microphone, trying to ignore you guys making faces at me to make me laugh. But, you know, I'm upset. 
And uh, after this podcast, I'm going to go outside. I'm going to go walk down to the water. And I'm going to let the ocean know that not all Albertans hate it, but that we have to be reasonable. One of one of the things that I find that I'm having trouble resolving is like, where does the Notley government go from here? Because we know the polling says there's a there's basically no chance they get reelected. They are unrecognizable as the NDP we knew five years ago, and their base is probably absolutely beside themselves. And I, one, you know, Dave and I are on this little text group, and one of our friends was like, "We are through the looking glass, people." Like the other thing that I wanted to say is like that whole rally for the for the pipeline thing. That was insane. It, it, it was a. I, I went to the pipeline rally, and it was it was a really weird event um, uh, to have the the NDP uh, NDP MLAs and NDP cabinet ministers standing at the podium on the steps of the legislature beside the UC, basically most of the UCP caucus. And it was a, it was not a friend, not an NDP friendly crowd. And they were all there. I mean, it was the, the, the I think the organizers had kind of framed it as a, a they framed it as a, framed it as a nonpartisan event. They'd framed it as a, you know, let's, it's a, it's a unity event behind the pipelines, but it was, it was very clear that, that you know, even though the NDP had promoted it through their, their mailing lists had, had tried to get people out, uh, this the pipeline issue is not energizing NDP supporters, and and despite the the NDP government, uh, you know, taking pretty drastic actions against British Columbia or, or threatening pretty drastic actions against British Columbia over over on this pipeline dispute, I don't think they're gaining traction on it, and uh, and I mean that has to be definitely has to be a, a, an issue of concern in the uh, you know on the third floor of the legislature because I mean it it just seems that they're they're stuck in this situation where they're where the the situation where the, the political dispute is is escalating and escalating and escalating and i'm not sure it's uh i mean i don't know really know i don't really know how this ends whether this pipeline gets built or, or whether it doesn't um but the uh, the electoral strategy the political strategy i don't really think it's working for the ndp at this point well there's this group of northwest governors and western premiers penmore i believe and it's a basically a a group of Western governments that get together for trade negotiations and to represent themselves as a bloc. And increasingly, I believe you're seeing the NDP federally and provincially move towards some sort of 40 years ago isolationist view of the world, where they are opposing trade deals sort of more strongly than they need to and out of ideology. And you look at this issue, and I believe both NDP governments are about to be all, all by themselves. You've got the government of Saskatchewan, which is talking about working with the rest of the country. I believe there's a good chance we might have a new government here. Never say never. The other point that I was going to say, though, is I think we're starting to see the outline of the next provincial NDP election race. No, sorry, the next provincial NDP leadership race. I'm definitely not counting out Rachel Notley. I definitely don't think it's over. But we can see how their next, assuming Rachel Notley loses, say, a year from now. We can definitely see what that leadership is going to be about. There will be a candidate, perhaps it's Shannon Phillips, who is, or someone, I guess I shouldn't name names. There will be a candidate for sure representing the, let's get back to our roots. Let's go back to what we really believe. Enough of this nonsense about supporting pipelines. You know, um, I think you're right. I've talked about it every episode. There is a huge tension in, internal to the party. You see ministers like Shay Anderson probably genuinely there with um, supporting something he believes in, but there's no way the cabinet agrees on this, never mind the caucus. So should they lose, and if Rachel Notley moves on to something else, I think we're seeing the strokes of the broad strokes of the race to replace her being put in place today. Yeah, and the only the only thing that I would add is I I predict or suspect that after the next election, assuming things play out the way and let me be clear, I'm I, I consider myself to be a small L uh, large P pragmatic liberal. But, um, so like I, un- I totally understand and I'm actually behind the direction of, of the Notley government right now, but I'm not a dipper. So I'm not going to hold the party to account the way that an NDP would. And I think after the next election, what we're going to see is the same kind of like soul searching the democratic party in the United States is doing right now going, how did we mess up that opportunity? Even though, we were saying all the right things to Albertans. If you are motivated by anger over this issue, though, 
is there anything the NDP can do to become your party? You know, like there's an expression we use on the conservative side that if you act too much like a liberal, then eventually the voters are just going to choose the real thing and vote for the liberals. I wonder how much of that is true here. I mean, how angry can Rachel Notley get before there's a point of diminishing returns where her people don't want that approach? Even those who are kind of swing voters who chose her, you know, she can't out UCP the UCP. And going to that rally was kind of give them giving their best shot. There's another saying in politics about making, you don't make friends out of your enemies by making enemies out of your friends. And I wonder, I mean, I don't understand the NDP or their base, but I wonder how many of them feel a little bit put off by this. I, I just wanted to touch on as, as we, as we move on, on the, the Ottawa summit that Justin Trudeau held, uh, Justin, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau returned from uh, uh, international trip in Lima, Peru, and returned to Ottawa before heading off to France for another meeting. Um, and he held a mini summit between Rachel Notley and uh, BC Premier John Horgan. And I think there was some hope that he might be able to negotiate some kind of like resolution to the political dispute, or at least like uh, at least a de de-escalation. But it seemed that I, nothing really came from the meeting. Both sides are their heels are dug in. Um, almost immediately after Rachel Notley returned, the, the Alberta government introduced their their legislation to turn off the taps to BC. Um, the BC government seems to be digging in its feet as well, making uh, with with legal appeals and legal reference cases. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess I I I you know I, I think Trudeau had an opportunity. I mean, I would have thought that he that the Prime Minister could have had an opportunity to uh, to at least de-escalate de the situation but it seems that uh, that both sides have really dug their feet in so their their feet in so i really don't know how this ends i mean the alberta government is continuing to continues to escalate um and the bc government continues to you know try to slow things down through through legal means um as in legal means through the legal system but the, i mean the question is is where you know where, where does this end and, and i don't even know what's i don't know what's going to happen a week from now or what's going to happen two weeks from now or, or what happens if if the alberta government actually implements their their legislation to uh, to slow the flow of oil and and, uh, and natural gas to bc i mean that's it's a pretty drastic move on on behalf of the alberta government but i don't it know us too, right? yeah, it, it, and that's it. It, it 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 doesn't just hurt british columbia it actually has you know politically and economic consequences to alberta as well i mean i think there's you know i don't, I don't know how the next bc election is going to go but i would think that 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 the window of opportunity for the prime minister to negotiate uh, you know, some kind of settlement for for this pipeline has to happen before the next BC election. I mean, what happens if the NDP went form a majority government in British Columbia on you know opposing the pipelines? I mean, I don't know the, if if that could happen, but but perhaps. Uh, and then what? Ha so what happens if you get a majority NDP government in British Columbia and then a majority UCP government in Alberta? I mean, I don't but, know if those two groups could really reconcile much because they're speaking to two completely different audiences. No, but I think that our system is designed for that. I think the Westminster parliamentary model would actually be fine with that because in that situation, the BC NDP could negotiate, right? With a strong government system, they can actually be comfort comfortable enough that they can play or they can play ball, I mean to say. Whereas Horgan right now has zero leverage. He has zero ability to maneuver. So a future NDP government would do something a little more severe than what Christy Clark did. They would say, Okay, this is going to happen. So this is my prediction. Of course, I'm not great at predicting the NDP, but this is going to happen. But here are our conditions, and we lay them all out. And you know, they would be annoying to the partisans on the other side. But at the end of the day, they would play ball. But a government that is handcuffed to power by a small, a small party with a tiny minority of the seats doesn't have that maneuverability. I actually think Horgan himself would negotiate if he could. And this is, again, probably why I'm not a big proponent of the proportional representation system, because you would see this type of government all the time. This is a fluke, sort of, in a way here, where BC is in this situation for now. But in a PR system, this is how every government would work. You have large parties that are brokerage parties or big tent that are held at ransom by single issue, um, you know, single issue parties. So I think that I would prefer to see an NDP majority in BC than what we have now. For that reason, well, we'll note, and, and we can have a, a bigger discussion about this in a, in a future episode. But I think in this fall, British Columbians are going to go to the polls for a referendum on proportional representation. So, if that passes, we could have, uh, you know, we could have a green be dealing with a Green Party government in BC. I wonder how Jason Kenney would deal with that. 
Now, isn't the BC government here talking about going to the Supreme Court over this too? So that could be one of the ways that, in a way that this resolves itself. But again, the BC Greens don't care what the Constitution says about jurisdiction over natural resources. So I don't even know when, and I don't say if, but when the federal Supreme Court rules that this is not acceptable behavior to block another provincial government from transferring its resources across its border. I don't think anything changes. I think the only thing that'll change this is an election in BC. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor this week, Edmonton Community Foundation. So guys, what do you know about the Edmonton Community Foundation? Well, I work in fundraising. So I know of them a little bit as a place where small donors can get together and have a larger impact. That's absolutely right. What about you, Dave? I know absolutely nothing, but I assume it's based in Edmonton and it's a foundation. (laughs) It is. And you know what they're all about? Community. One of the other things they're all about is actually podcasting. The Edmonton Community Foundation also produces the Well Endowed podcast. Have you guys ever had a chance to listen? No, but I've subscribed, but I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. But it's on my list. It's it's a good one. Um, I'm going to talk about the two most recent episodes they did. One is called She's Got This, and it's a... It's all about the hosts going and learning about women building futures, which is a really incredible organization that helps women learn trades and become tradespeople. And the second one is an interview with Anne McClelland. Anyone remember her? I, I voted for Anne McClelland twice, I think. Wow. She's a colleague of mine at the U of A. She's also the chair of the task force on cannabis legalization. So in episode 20 of the Well-Endowed podcast, she talks to the hosts about the uh, possible benefits and challenges of legalizing cannabis. Uh, and given that we are recording this the day before 420, I thought it was uh, I thought it was a good idea that we mentioned that. So check out the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast, thewellendowedpodcast.com is where you can find all their episodes. Their most recent one, an interview with Honorable and McClellan, chair of the Task Force on Cannabis Legalization. And now Ryan is going to uh, delve into his regular segment, So You Want to Be a Candidate, for all you prospective candidates out there. Ryan, take it away. So last time we did this segment, I talked about how it's my belief that candidates really only have three jobs. And the order doesn't matter, but those three jobs are volunteers, dollars, and voters. Anything that deals with the actual voters is something that the candidate should focus on. Tonight, I'm going to focus on the primary one, voters, which in a nomination context is even more important than it normally is in a general. So I have a model here using my fancy iPad pen, um, kind of that I do to walk people through the theory of nominations and really any election. So there's a great Abraham Lincoln quote that explained how politics was best done in his day. And I'm just looking at it now. Is it, uh, is it the quote about uh, burning your backside if you turn away from the ballot? Is, it, <laughs> is that the quote you're looking for? Well, that one also is good, but no. <laughs> um, so basically what, the, what he's saying is that elections are, and a nomination election definitely counts, a fairly straightforward process. process. The first part is identifying everyone who might vote for you. Your voter uniform universe, you could say. So in a nomination, people, think of this as people who eventually will show up for your nomination election day. There's a few steps in between, but the first one is let's make one list. Now that list could be something like Nation Builder or Salesforce or an Excel spreadsheet or a manila folder or a banker's box. It doesn't matter. But the key here is gather up all the people put them into one system. So typically lists include people you know from sports, from your business life or your place of work, from your church or from Rotary, other party members that already are there. Um, Everyone will have a different list. The key is get it as broad as you can. Then put them into this one box, which is called unknown. So the goal here is to identify each of them. There's really only three outcomes during a nomination that you're truly interested in from a potential voter. Will they support you? Yes, no, or maybe. The best answer is yes, but second best is not maybe. The second best answer is no, 
Now, you still don't want to be mean to them or cut them off at an intersection or whatever, particularly when there's a multiple ballot scenario or a, sorry, a preferential ballot scenario because you might need them on second vote. But if they tell you, you know what, Dave, I'm just not going to support you at the nomination because a friend of mine is running. Well, that's fine. Mark them as not supportive. Make sure you track that and then just move on. Your goal is to get people to yes. So often people will say, well, maybe, and then they're stuck in a voter persuasion cycle, which can actually be very time consuming. And then a nomination, the key is to get as many yeses as possible. So if someone really takes a lot of persuasion, you probably shouldn't count on them too much. If someone says yes, I'm with you, Adam Rosenhart, nomination candidate for the Rhino Party in Edmonton Center. I want you to be our candidate. How did you know? I just have a sense. Yeah. So what you do, and ideally it's the candidate themselves, because she's the best one to talk to voters, is you say to your, to your potential supporter, that's great. I'm going to mark you down as yes. Now, each party has a different rule for how this works, but fundamentally, at some point, they have to have a membership to vote, or they have to be an eligible voter. If we're in the season where the cutoff is now, you really should skip right to the question, do you have a membership? Now, most normal people don't know that, and you won't know that either unless you sell them one, which is a little bit tough to do if they think they're already a member or you get your membership list from the party. So at some point, nomination candidates are screened, there's an application process, and then the local writing association will say, okay, you're in, here's your list of the membership. So at that point, you go back to these people and you say, great, you're a member, or actually you probably would just skip them. To people who say, yeah, I'm supporting you, I'm not sure about my membership, at this point you go back and you say, you wanna support David or Adam, you have to be a member. So that can actually be done by someone other than you if they're really solid. You can have someone call them up and say, you know what, Mrs. Smith, you're, you're, it looks like your membership expired. So again, the process, identify as many people as possible, make a list, write it down, put them all into a box, and you, the candidate, sorry, other people can actually do some of this list building for the initial sources because other people have names that they may think could get involved. But you're, you really should speak to each of them, especially at a local nomination. They expect to hear from you. So work your way through the list. You can door knock it, you can phone it, you can text it, whatever you want to do to get to yes, no, or maybe. Ideally, yes, write them down. And then the final stage is to get out the vote. So in a nomination, getting out the vote is actually fairly tangible and linear. It's getting them to vote. It's usually done on a weekend. If it's in one of our warmer months, people are going to the cottage. If it's in a colder month, they don't want to come out because it's snowing. It's actually pretty hard to get normal citizens to come out and do a nomination vote. So it becomes a numbers game. If you think you're going to need 200 to win, you better have 400 in your list. And so that day, volunteers can help you. But it's essentially focused only on those who you know are supporting you and who are current members. Doesn't mean you should be jerks to the unknowns because you're probably going to need them on second ballot. But in a case where you only have so much time, so much energy, so many resources, focus on those that are solid for you. So ID, persuade, GOTV. That's a little bit backwards. Normally you would say persuade ID GOTV, but in this case, it's because you have to pay money to be a member. It's ID list, work them through your identification process, persuade them to become a donor, uh, sorry, persuade them to become a member, and then get them out to vote. Sounds easy, right guys? It Well, it sounds like a lot of hard work. It's, it's the election before the election. And uh, being a perpetually lazy man, I am withdrawing my candidacy from the Rhino Party. Well, I think they would probably acclaim you. I, I have a question for you, Ryan. You've run a couple times, so you've run in a couple, what, two nomination races. Uh, what what did you find the most difficult, and how did you overcome it? In like in terms of of something from the nomination pro- dealing with the nomination process, in terms of selling well, memberships or recruiting people. Okay, so the most difficult thing about a nomination is neither of those things. The most difficult is how personal it is, because you basically all agree. You know, when I ran in the general election against the NDP, it was great fun. There was my team, there was their team, everyone together. Let's go like the armies in the Braveheart movie and just run out there and fight. The hard thing about a nomination is like you and the other candidates may agree on basically everything. And then it comes down to kind of like a high school contest, you know, who's more popular. So back to your question, though, the hardest thing about getting people signed up is really just that it takes quite a lot of effort. For a normal citizen leading their lives, you're asking them not just to show up on election day, which is hard enough, 
but to pay money to become a member of some party. And they're worried then that they're going to start getting the calls. They're going to get harassed all the time. And it's basically true that they will. <laughs> so you're just hoping that you can overcome it. And as in all things, it just becomes about raw numbers. You know, if you, if you can get a sufficient number out, then really nothing else matters. Um, even in my nomination defeat, you know, to my opponent's credit, he sold way more memberships than we did. And so he was able to overwhelm the election day. You know, if you can get more people out, it'll compensate for turnout rate. It'll compensate for they picked a weekend where everyone's out at the lake. And so at least on the conservative side, membership sales, it's such a cliche, but it really is the only thing that really matters. I mean, assuming a baseline of you're electable, you're presentable, you're credible. Once you kind of checked all those boxes and everybody else will too, because the parties have a process in place for that. It just becomes about motivating people to not only vote on election day, but to pay their 10 bucks to join a party. And for most Canadians, 99% of Canadians, that's just something they're never going to do. So are you selling these people on the idea of joining the party or, or is it joining the party to support you? Like which feature slash benefit do you lead with? And then my second question is you talked about, you know, voter outreach being door knocking or phone calling or texting. And I know the world has changed since you, you ran Ryan, but like, what do you find are some of the better tactics for, for making those connections with potential uh, party members? So the first question, I think there's two types of people. One is the type of person, and this is in the universe of those who may vote in a nomination. One is there are just some political people who, for lack of a better way to put it, are just shopping for a candidate. You know, they're the standbys, they're the faithful volunteers, the donors, the people who just choose to participate in the process. And so they're looking for a candidate to support. The other category is tougher and it's your personal network. And so when you're doing a nomination, I mean, if you, it depends too on the community. If you're running in a place where the most of the political opinion is the same, then you could run against, you know, you can say this is about, for example, all these UCP nominations going on right now. The message to those members is this is about changing the government. This is about going in a different direction. If you're running for an NDP nomination, probably the same thing. This is about keeping Jason Kenney out of power. Um, the, the, the secret sauce, I talked about all these potential lists. So everyone's going to have the existing membership as an input into that list. Everyone's going to have previous donors, previous members. The secret sauce is what list is only accessible to you. And getting those people out is key. So if you're a member of Rotary and you can get 10 people out from there who otherwise wouldn't participate, that's gold because it's, it's a differential. Uh, one of my opponents was part of the Knights of Columbus and I was not. So there was a bunch of voters right there. So you just think of things like that. Now, these people, if they're not part of the political process, their participation rate may be lower than you think, maybe less than half, maybe a third, maybe 20%. So that's where it's just a numbers game. So um, in terms of the best tactics, I'm kind of old-fashioned. I think most members are too. I think they want to meet you. They want to look you in the whites of your eyes and shake your hand. And at the nomination, especially people, at least in the parties that I'm part of, people have an expectation that they will meet you. And it's amazing how even if you door knock your feet off every day for the whole writ and everyone knows that you're doing that, you'll still meet voters who are annoyed at you because you didn't come to their door. And I'm speaking from experience. So, you know, that's in a general at the nomination level. Yeah. Other tactics are important. You can use digital tools, you can use the phone, but it's really hard to, again, it comes back to that participation rate. So a voter who's met you and shaking your hand probably has a higher motivation, which means you need less of them. You need, say you had a hundred people highly motivated, that will defeat highly unmotivated 200, right? So it's all about managing finite resources, but I would recommend to a candidate for a nomination to get out there and meet as many people in this potential voter universe as possible, the old-fashioned way, shaking their hand, looking them in the eye, and letting them know that you're, you're the right candidate. Because just like the reason why I have an Apple and an iPad when there's cheaper alternatives, voting is an emotional decision. It's not really always just about specifications. It's about relating to them at a subconscious level. 
it reminds me of the old video game, The Sims. You you have to spend time making friends with your neighbor. And uh, it, it sounds like you employ all three tactics, uh, you know, meeting someone, shaking their hand, looking in the whites of their eyes, uh, phoning them and texting them. But there's a, there is a sequence to it, right? And, and the most important one is the first one, but you you have to keep them involved and engaged throughout the process. It sounds exhausting. I don't ever want to do it. I, I, I think that's why I enjoyed the version of SimCity where you didn't have to worry about the individual people, but you could just do urban planning and knock down blocks and, and build your maglev and your transit system wherever you want. So it's funny, but democracy is messy and it's totally imperfect. I mean, the, the types, there are some politicians who are amazing nomination politicians and terrible elected officials. And there's some people who are the opposite. And unfortunately, this is not only the system we've got, but probably the best system we can think of. You know, I, I too, at times would prefer a philosopher king, but that would depend on him agreeing with me all the time. And so, um, as you know, as people say, it's the best system we've got. And if you want the chance to govern, you have to get in there. It's, it's very hard work. It's exhausting. The nomination is the worst part of the whole process, in my experience. But you have to do it. You have to be viable. You have to persuade. If you can't persuade conservatives or, you know, whichever party you're in, you're not going to convince the general public. So I don't mean to talk any of you out of it, and I know that I'm not going to, but for anyone thinking about running, you know, if none of this made sense, I'd be more than happy to explain it again. But, you know, essentially think of it as a big bucket of unknowns. You want to make them yes, no, maybes are no good. Yes or no. Thanks, Ryan. That was that was awesome. Really good info. Um, I just want to give a... Uh... Uh, pitch to an event that's coming up that's related to nominations uh, on April 28th. Uh, Equal Voice uh, Southern Alberta is having an event in Calgary, and they're going to be there's going to be a panel discussion uh, with representatives from different political parties. Diana McQueen from the UCP, she's a former Tory MLA. Um, Shannon Phillips from the NDP. Karen McPherson from the Alberta Party. Uh, and then Michelle Robinson from from the Liberal Party. So they'll be having a discussion. Uh, I think the panel is moderated by Jen Gerson. Uh, so it should be a great panel. And then afterwards, from what I understand from the press release, they're going to be create, having like breakout sessions. So people who are attending can talk with the, the politician from the specific party that they're if they're interested in running for nominations and they can talk about the nomination process. So if you're interested, you know, if you're a woman um, and you're interested in running in the next election, uh, this sounds like a pretty interesting event. So, you know, T- take uh, take advantage of it. Um, I'm just pulling a press release here. You can look it up on the on their website. Uh, but yeah, April 28th at uh, in Calgary. Well, yeah, great point, and we love Equal Voice. And I'm happy to hear Diana McQueen will be representing the conservative side. And I hope Diana, if you listen to this, that you are considering running because we'd love to see you get back into the fold. Okay, now we're going to open up the old mailbag. So, Dave, what do we have this week? We have one question this week. Eric Grenier asks, what is the scenario, seats and vote, that sees Notley re-elected in 2019? I think the answer to that question is, is, uh, is what is the ballot question? It d- depends what the ballot question is, question is in 2019. I think right now, um, this, the, the situation does not look great for the, for the NDP going into the next election. Um, they are very behind in the polls to the UCP, which the UCP, which, uh, you know, appears to have momentum in terms of candidate nominations, appears to have momentum in terms of, uh, fundraising. Uh, they've just, uh, released, uh, or, or broadcast their numbers for, uh, for the first quarter of 2018. And I think they raised more than a million dollars in terms of their party and their constituency associations. Um, the NDP also had their best quarter ever, which they only raised half a million dollars, which is a lot of money, but, that when you're when you're going against a party that's able to raise double the double the amount you are are in in, um, in the same quarter, it, it definitely puts you at a bit of a disadvantage. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it depends what the ballot question is. If the ballot question uh, is the economy and jobs, I'm not sure that that the uh, that the NDP win the next election. Um, they have a lot of ground to make up. Um, it, even in the last election, the NDP only only got twenty. Or, pardon me, only got forty uh, percent of the vote um, compared to the two other parties. Which it appears now that the uh, that the the conservative vote from the Wild Rose Party and the PC Party is largely coalesced behind the UCP. 
so even if the NDP were able to get the same amount of votes that they got in the last election, 40, 40 or 41 percent, uh, that's still not enough for them to form government if, uh, if the UCP is able to, to hold on to 50 or 60 percent. So it, it's definitely an uphill battle. Um, but again, it really depends what the ballot question is. If it's going to be something that's friendlier to the NDP, if, if the ballot question is, are, should we elect a government that's not going to close schools and hospitals and, and lay off teachers and nurses, then, uh, then the NDP, I think, are at a, at a better advantage. But, but if the ballot question is all about jobs and economy, I'm not so confident that, uh, that it's, uh, that it's good, a good situation for the NDP. It'll be a really interesting campaign, especially when you put Rachel Notley up in a debate against middle-aged white guy Jason Kenney and ancient white guy Stephen Mandel and whatever the hell the, uh, the Liberal Party does. She, we all know that she, and Ryan, you, you've said this before, she's a top political performer. She's exceptionally good at this. And, and you know, I think as we say frequently, we can't necessarily count her out of potential success a year from today. Yeah, but on the other side, it's about expectations. And I think opponents of Jason Kenney assume that he's going to get on stage and like, you know, turn the stage into lava and laugh maniacally like some sort of cartoon villain. He is, if not her equal as a political performer, um, he may be better. And expectations. So I think about, I think, and you know, I just want to say, I make lots of jokes about being a partisan and I don't hide it, but I, I think we do try and I do try to be objective. If I'm being objective, I think the best ballot box question for the Notley government is about Jason Kenney. Normally, elections are a referendum on the, the government leader. You know, the 08 election federally was about Stephen Harper. The next federal election will be about Justin Trudeau. But in this case, I think their best case scenario is to make it about Jason Kenney. And I still don't know if that gets them across the line. Because if you divide Alberta up into regions, you know, he is. We, the Conservatives are probably going to be in a real fight, maybe even a disadvantage in the Edmonton region. But outside of the cities, outside of Edmonton and Calgary, it would take something fairly substantive to not give the UCP a structural lead. In Calgary, sure, it has a history of electing Liberals in some pockets, but it has no real history of electing NDP. And so... If you're looking at the, the chessboard, and back to our last conversation with the two leaders, where's the fight? If you're Rachel Notley, do you spend every ounce of energy you have to try to eke out a couple seats in Calgary? Or do you do a save the furniture campaign and basically just try to run up the score in Edmonton? And even then, I'm not sure how they hold enough seats to govern. I mean, you need, what's half of 87? You need 44 seats. So... Although I make jokes about the NDP, and obviously I'm not an NDP supporter, even at my most charitable, this is looking like a pretty tough election. Now, the downside from the UCP perspective here is clear. You know, there was some polling going around this week showing that it's not that close. And as a, a campaign, you know, I don't know if I'm a strategist, but as a campaign guy, that makes me actually pretty nervous because we have nowhere to go but down. The media love, and, and pundits, people like us, love a horse race. And the only way they're going to go to a horse race now is to bring down the front runner. So in a way, if there was a 50-50 poll right now, it would galvanize everybody to know that they have to work super hard. You know, the cliche is you're supposed to assume you're five votes behind. Being way ahead is not good for anything, except for maybe one thing, which is recruiting star candidates. If you are the type of person who may not run in politics at all, but you can be persuaded by a Rachel Notley or a Jason Kenney that you'd be a strong candidate for the cabinet, then maybe super strong polling numbers help. But I don't like these poll numbers. This isn't meant to sound arrogant, but these are too good. There's nowhere to go but down. Yeah, I think that's definitely a challenge for, for the UCP is to not be too confident. And you can see in, in the interview we played with Jason Kenney last week, or pardon me, in, last, in the last episode, you could see him try, you know, talk, talking confidently about the UCP leads, but then saying they shouldn't take everything for granted. And I think that that is important. I mean, we all remember going back to the 2012 election where Daniel Smith was was the going to be the premier of Alberta, and that totally evaporated uh, in the in the last week or so of the campaign. 
Um, and even in the last election, going into the last election, we saw, uh, you know, it, it looked as though when the election was called, it looked as though that uh, that Jim Prentice, Jim Prentice, and the Progressive Conservatives were were going to win another majority, and and that obviously didn't happen. But even though the poll numbers, are, I mean, the poll numbers are are really good for the UCP and not great for the NDP. A lot can change in a year in Alberta politics, as we all know. Uh, but the electoral math just does not look great for the NDP going into the next election. They've been in, in rural Alberta. They've been, re- I mean, as 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 Ryan said, I think structurally there's there'd be something something that would really need to change in rural Alberta. So the NDP need to figure out where they can where they can make gains to offset their losses, and and you know, it's it's really difficult to figure out where that is because Edmonton would be where they would make gains, but they already have all the seats in Edmonton. Um, I think one of the challenges that the NDP are going to have in Calgary, and I know that that uh, that the, the NDP are hoping to make, to put the put the UCP on the defensive in some areas in Calgary, um, and I, I mean I think that that's what they need to do uh, going into the next election. But the challenge for the NDP is that most of their MLAs re- were elected in 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 a wave in the last election in Calgary. Most of their MLAs didn't actually run real get out the vote campaigns, didn't actually identify all the people who voted for them in the last election. So unlike the conservatives who have a more sophisticated get out the vote structure, the UCP who has all the lists from the old Wild Rose Party, all of the lists from the old PC party support from the federal conservative party, which is incredibly, incredibly well organized in Calgary. Uh, the NDP have 15 or 14 incumbents in Calgary, but they may not have the ground game. And the other thing is the NDP could actually get the same amount of votes that they got in the last election and still lose. So the NDP, I think in total in Calgary, I think they sat around 36% in Calgary and that, that led to, to 14 or 15 MLAs being elected in the city because of the way the votes were dis- distributed between the, the parties. But if all the Wild Rose and all the former PC votes, even if if just that coalesces around the uh, around the uh, the UCP, the NDP are going to have a hard time holding on to the seats in Calgary. So, I think that the NDP need to find a way to make to to get some ground game and make it a ground make it make it actually make it a competitive election in Calgary. Um, but it, that I mean, even even that could could be difficult for them. So it really is an, an electoral math thing. Um, looking at the even with the new boundaries and the new urban seats being added, um, I think it's it's definitely an, an uphill battle. But the NDP are also, I mean, you know, they're they're also better when they're when they're the scrappy underdog. So I mean that that could also play well for them. And I mean, as we said, we said as we said in this podcast, don't underestimate Rachel Notley. She's an, she's an excellent campaigner, and she's she carried that party in the last election. Yeah. Um, it you know it's a it's a different scenario. She's going to be going up against Jason Kenney, who is also a very impressive campaigner. But uh, but I mean. Right now, the chances chances look slim, but uh, but we'll see. A lot a lot can change, I guess, in in Alberta politics. Well, exactly. And hey, headline: Alberta Conservative Party with overwhelming lead. You know what could possibly go wrong? Also, I wanted to do a shout out for the mailbag because Dave and I. I don't know, Adam, if you received this, but Dave and I received an email from a friend of mine who I'm sure is our best fan in Australia. So Shane, hey man, how are you doing, mate? Uh, it's been a little while since I've seen you. Hope you guys are doing well. The kid, the baby, sure is cute. The dog is cute too. I'm just so thankful that you tune in and that you listen to us and that you actually pay attention to what we're saying. And I want to thank you for some of the data that you sent us. He sent us an analysis of <laughs> Calgary Buffalo and Calgary Mountain View. I'm pretty sure my friend Shane in Australia knows more about those two ridings than I do. In fact, I'm positive that he does. So thanks for contributing to the other mailbag and I hope you guys are doing well. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producer, Adam Rosenhart, for helping us to put this episode together. And a huge thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. We're a member now and we stand with many other Alberta-made podcasts. Now, Adam, speaking of other podcasts, you put one together called The Expats. And I believe that the final episode is coming up. Now, I, as we joked about before, am currently in Vancouver. Uh, are you thinking about doing a podcast for expat Albertans? <laughs> I, I could adapt the whole show just to service uh, Albertans in BC who are yearning for a, a larger Trans Mountain Pipeline. But uh, 
but but I think I'll I have to wrap up this this expat series first. So I produced uh, the first of my two part episode that came out um, a couple weeks ago, and uh, I think as long as the interviews line up, I've had some struggles. Uh, I'll be doing the finale uh, hopefully next week. So by the time you're hearing this, it may be out. If it's not, it's because things fell through as they as they sometimes do in the podcast world. But yeah, one last episode and then I can focus all my energy on the Dave Berta podcast. Well, we're, we're sad to see you wrap up the expats, but we are eternally thankful for all the help you do uh in terms of producing the and you're producing and joining us on the on the day Berta podcast you you make us sound great adam so oh, thanks guys v- visit albertapodcastnetwork.com for uh to listen to the expats and uh and check out the final episode coming out coming soon uh and all other alberta podcast network shows also, uh, before we let you go, we should let you know that we're running a little contest. Uh, we've talked about this before, but we want you to submit reviews for the show wherever you get your podcast. So leave us a rating and review. Anytime between now and May 31st, you'll be entered into a draw for fabulous prizes. A, uh, a lock of hair that I cut from Dave Egan's head when I got to meet him will be part of that prize pack. I am, of course, lying because that would have been insane. Um, but we will we'll let you know about prizes pretty soon. And for those of you who have already left reviews, we will grandfather you in. But here's the trick. If you leave, a, if you leave or have left us a review, you need to email podcast at daveberta.ca with a screenshot of your review so we know who the heck you are. And and thanks to everybody who's emailed us so far, a few of you have, uh, with screenshots. So continue doing that, and we'll enter you into the contest. You can also send us your feedback or ask us any questions you have for the next episode. You can get us on Twitter at, at DaveBerta on the DaveBerta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.